This podcast is offered by Jikoji Zen Center on the web at jikoji.org. Our programs are made possible by donations from people like you. So great to see the, the Zendo pretty full today. We're, uh, we're still getting used to reopening up here at Jikoji. I think it's almost exactly a month that we've been uh, open again after after that long period when we uh, had to close. Uh, and it's just such a joy to be able to sit with, uh, with people again. It was a year, I guess, year and a half, of a lot of, of sitting alone for many of us. Uh, and it's interesting how different it is to sit together with other people you know, we often think about sitting as a, as a solitary pursuit, but, you know, for over a couple thousand years, Buddhists have been coming together to sit. Uh, and there really is something, something magical about sitting together with others. So thank you so much for coming up and joining us today. Thank you. Since he wasn't here for introductions, I'll just say that's Doug. <laughs> um, so this has been a big weekend for me. Uh, my younger daughter actually just left home yesterday, uh, driving uh, with her girlfriend to Colorado. Uh, and so I spent yesterday really helping her pack and load up the car and, and then seeing her off. So then when I was sitting down to think about what I might talk about today, of course, uh, she was on my mind. And uh, it felt like a natural time to think about and maybe talk about uh, attachment. Uh, although I'm a I'm a priest in, in our Zen Buddhist tradition. Uh, I've always been a householder priest. So someone who both lives as a, as a Zen priest, but also lives in the world. I've had a family and job. Uh, and people often ask me about uh, sort of what that's like. Uh, and at this point, I've, I've lived as a householder priest, you know, almost half my life. Uh, I think 20, 23 years. And uh, people ask how, how is it possible to live in the world and have friends and colleagues and partner and children, uh, you know, without, without getting too attached. And it's certainly something I think that's very challenging. Um, certainly has been challenging for me. You know, when we think about, you know, what uh, a monastic life is like, leaving the secular world behind and go living in a Zen monastery or Buddhist temple somewhere, 
which of course many people still do, uh, we tend to think of that as something that's very difficult. But, uh, but Buddha actually didn't think about it that way. Uh, in the old scriptures, he often describes the monastic life as easy. That's the easy way to practice. Uh, because you have so much, so many fewer distractions, so many fewer opportunities to get overly attached. Practicing as a, as a lay person in the world uh, was certainly possible, but Buddha saw that as the more difficult of the paths. Because you had to navigate practice along with all the distractions of ordinary life. And yet from the very beginning, Buddha taught that it was possible. And in fact, Buddha's very first disciples were lay people. Uh, the story goes that back even, uh, even before he had decided to teach, he had just had his awakening experience he was still sitting by himself uh, in the little clearing that uh, people in the local village somehow learned that he was there and that uh, he was a fully awakened being. Uh, and even back then in India, when there were lots of wandering holy people. It was seen as a big deal to have a fully awakened being just sitting outside of town somewhere. Uh, and so these two kind of traveling salesmen, Tapusa and Balika, decided to venture out from the village uh, and see what was going on. And so they went out and they brought some, some food to offer. That was the tradition as it is now when visiting a holy person. And as soon as they saw Buddha, they could tell that he was fully awakened. And they immediately asked to be his students. And so even then, when he hadn't really even decided he wanted to be a teacher, he took them on and gave them some instruction. And then they went on their way and continued living as merchants with their families. But they kept practicing and many, many years later, when Buddha was asked to recount his sort of most illustrious students, he still remembered Tapusa and Balika. 
and felt confident that they had also realized awakening. Back in Buddha's time, it wasn't unusual for people to have an awakening just by hearing his words. And you sometimes still hear about these spontaneous awakenings today, but it seems very rare. And for most of us, we have to practice. Why we come to temples like Jokoji, as you all have, as I have today. Buddhist teachings are quite simple. His first talk where he laid out all the foundations of the Dharma is pretty short. But somehow, even though it's simple, it doesn't come naturally to most of us. Buddha taught that the key to overcoming suffering is what he called the middle way. This way that avoids all extremes, a way of balance. But even though that's easy to explain, you can explain it in a few words as I just did. It's somehow much harder to do. There's some natural tendency in us to, to drift from one extreme to the other, to lose that, that center, that balance. I sometimes think of it a little like bowling. It's just somehow it takes a lot of effort to keep the ball in the middle, naturally wants to go to one side or the other. And so like that in our life, it takes effort, it takes concentration to stay in that center. And the practice we've done together this morning, this sitting meditation, what we call Zazen, that's a key to developing that effort and concentration and learning to pay attention. Because without paying attention, we just inevitably drift. And so that's what we've all been doing. We've all been, been practicing this paying attention. We sometimes call this practice mindfulness. But that's really just a fancy word for, for developing this basic skill of attention. In Pali, the, the original language of the Buddha, it's not a fancy word at all. It's quite short, sati. It's the same word you use when you just talk about remembering something, paying attention to something. And meditation is the way we kind of practice this mindfulness, this attention, the way we develop that, that muscle, that skill 
And we do it in places like this, quiet, peaceful, not too bright. We sit generally with our eyes partially open, but facing a wall. All to limit our distractions, to try to make this paying attention as easy as possible. So that we can have that experience, that lived physical experience of full attention. And then draw on that experience, that feeling when we're out in the world. The form of meditation we practice is, is very, very simple. Again, it can be explained in a few words. Try to sit upright, our back straight, our shoulders back. Our heads perhaps tilted just slightly down, our gaze just a little bit in front of us at the floor so that our lids naturally close halfway. And then we try to sit still and simply pay attention to whatever comes up. Not shutting away thoughts and feelings, but not chasing after them either. Just noticing each moment exactly as it is. And yet I think as we all discover when we sit, something can be simple and difficult at the same time. Although the posture sounds simple, it's surprisingly hard to find that stillness. We often discover that we're, we're not even aware of our bodies in space. That it takes real effort to pay attention to how we hold ourselves. And even learning to pay attention in this space with few distractions, even that can be quite difficult. And so we usually start by trying to pay attention to something very specific, usually our breathing, because our breath can serve as sort of a natural metronome. It's always with us. It gives our attention something to rest on in a way. And so what does this practice have to do with attachment? Well, I think there's a middle way to our relationships too. 
we can love someone without holding them too tightly. We can care for people without grasping them. And learning to do this is actually a big part of our, of our practice. You know, long after Buddha passed, after Buddhism took hold in India, began to spread throughout Asia. And the Zen school that we practice here originated in China, then spread to Japan, Vietnam, Korea, ultimately to here, to America. And this family of Buddhist traditions that developed in East Asia is often called the Mahayana or great vehicle. And it's characterized by this commitment to focus on others as well as ourselves. And the ideal of a bodhisattva In the old teachings, Bodhisattva is someone who will become a Buddha, but just isn't quite there yet. The term is sometimes used to refer to Buddha himself before his great awakening. But in Mahayana Buddhism, it took on a slightly different nuance and became someone who could become a Buddha, who could fully transcend suffering, but chooses to wait, chooses to stay enmeshed in this world in order to help others to help others relieve their suffering. And so that's the commitment we make in our practice. Not just to find awakening for ourselves, but to help others realize awakening too. And there are so many opportunities to do this. You can practice kindness with everyone you meet. Sometimes there are big dramatic moments where you help someone in a very difficult situation. But sometimes just small gestures, looking at someone and just seeing them, really seeing them. You don't need to go anywhere else 
to find these opportunities. Just as you don't need to go anywhere else to practice mindfulness. These opportunities to pay attention to ourselves and to others, they're all around us in every moment. And it really does all come back to paying attention. You can't be kind to someone without noticing them first, without paying attention to them. And when we do pay attention, we can also tell when we care too much. When perhaps our caring comes not from a sense of kindness, but from a sense of clinging. And we can start to find that balance. When my daughter was getting ready to move out over the last few weeks, uh, you know, she struggled with a lot of the logistics. Of the and so I tried to help. And in many ways, the helping was easy. The hard part was remembering not to help too much. Because true compassion, true kindness is not trying to shelter our family and friends from every hardship. That's what Buddha's parents tried to do when he was growing up as a prince. And it didn't work for them and it doesn't work for us. True kindness is helping people just enough, not letting them suffer needlessly, but also not sheltering them from experiences that would help them grow. It's that middle way again, a middle way that we can only find through practice and attention. And so that's why we're here together today. It's wonderful to look around and see all of you, some old friends, some new friends. The truth is I have many attachments here. But I think that's okay. Buddha knew that there was no way to live in the world without forming attachments. And so that's the choice we make. All of us here, I think, have chosen this more difficult path of practicing while staying in the world. Practicing 
while still forming these attachments. And so that's our challenge. But no matter how difficult it becomes, keep in mind that it's still possible. That if we continue our practice, we can find that awakening together. Thank you. So we have some time for, for questions. Uh, both people on Zoom and anyone in the room, do you have anything you'd like to ask or say? Yes, please. Money, would it be harmonic with what you're saying is to say that what is difficult is also the gift because that's when I practice, but it was not difficult. I'm not as likely to practice as deeply as when it's easy. Uh, so I'll just repeat the question uh, since some people may not have heard. Uh, so the question was whether it, uh, whether we could say that what is difficult is also the gift because if it was easy, then we, we wouldn't have the sort of inspiration, the motivation to practice. Uh, yes, I, I think that's true. Again, if we look at the story of Buddha's life, which, which I take as, a, as an inspiration, he started out as this pampered prince where his, his parents really tried to make sure that he was never unhappy. Uh, and the story is that they even posted guards at the gates of the palace so that if you were unhappy, you couldn't come in. So you wouldn't even see unhappy people. Um, and, and he didn't practice. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't really do much other than enjoy this pampered life for the first, I think, 20 years or so of his life. And it wasn't really until he encountered sickness, old age, death, until he became, came face to face with, with suffering that he was inspired to begin to practice. So yes, I think it's true. And, uh, and you see that in daily life sometimes as well. People who seem to have led a sort of charmed life and have no particular interest in anything but enjoying uh, the results of that good luck. And then other people who, who have struggled and as a result of that struggle, find themselves in a temple like, like Jokoji. Uh, and so, yes, well, you know, while I don't wish suffering on anyone, I do think this sense of struggle is often what leads us to, to practice. Like disappointment is the high road to enlightenment. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank you. Doug? Yeah, to follow up on Larry's question, um, <clears throat> Uh, it, it's slightly expanded in, in terms of the middle way. Isn't it necessary to bump into the extremes 
in order to find what the middle is. Mm -hmm. And okay. shouldn't that be embraced too? Thank you. So the question was, uh, building on Larry's question, is it necessary or isn't it necessary to sort of bump into the extremes in order to find that middle way? And I think it may be. Um, I think the risk is that sometimes people use that as a I don't know, as an excuse or as permission to just kind of go crazy. Like to, because the thing about looking for the, the edge is you never really find it. You can always be more extreme. Uh, and so I worry about people going and trying to, in a sense, map out the whole territory so that they can find the middle because you can get quite lost on those edges. Um, but at the same time, I think part of why we have this practice of paying attention is because we can, when we are paying attention, feel when we've gotten out of balance. And often you don't have to get too far towards these, towards these edges to know that something's not quite right, that you're not where you wanna be, where you need to be. And it's also true that this middle way looks different for different people. Uh, you know, for some who maybe live a more austere way of life, uh, the life that all of us lead may seem, you know, too, too pampered. You know, for others, getting up early and sitting each morning feels too austere. And so you do have to find it for yourself. And the only way to do that, as Doug said, is a certain amount of experimentation, a certain amount of trial and error. And the key is just to keep, keep paying attention because all those experiments are useless. In a sense, if you're not looking at the data, if you're not, uh, if you're not paying attention to what happens when you try this way or that way. And so that trial and error only works if we are able to practice mindfulness and pay attention to the results. Thank you. Um, Please. Okay, can you hear me okay? Yes. Okay, okay. Uh, when you're talking about suffering, the word, uh, I think you used the word transcend suffering. And that kind of just hit me in a particular way. And I've heard the word transcend, well, many times over the years with, with Buddhism. And part of me is kind of my own impressions and maybe what I do with it. But it, I, I ask the question, what is this? I mean, it, in a certain way, the word transcend almost feels like being in a bubble of bliss and somehow it feels permanent. And I don't think that's how it is, but it, I, I guess um, I, and I, I don't think even the Buddha was 
was in a bubble of bliss. I'm, I'm sure he felt so. I'm, and maybe the, what I'm saying about the word transcend is way off, but maybe if you can expand upon the meaning of that word transcend, so it it's uh, it feels less like uh, I don't know. It, it feels more fluid. I, I'm, I'm not sure what I'm saying, but I know what I'm saying, but I'm not sure I'm getting across. Do you, is, <laughs> does that make any sense what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, let me, let me try to, to repeat it. Uh, you've asked about this idea of transcending suffering and that that yeah. sounds like entering some permanent state of bliss. Yeah, uh, yeah. and that's what a lot of people want. <laughs> and that's what a lot of people want. Right. And so I think that isn't what, uh, what Buddha taught. First, uh, there is nothing that's permanent. So there's no state that's permanent. That's one of the, one of the three fundamental factors of all life is that it's impermanent. Nothing lasts forever. But also I think uh, he taught that suffering cannot ever be completely avoided. Uh, so we sometimes use words like overcoming suffering or transcending suffering, which I think is intended to suggest almost the opposite of what you said, which is that the suffering is still there. We're just not as bound up in it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, trying to avoid suffering at all costs, that was, that was Buddha's parents' path of just trying to live a life of ease, of uh, comfort, of, of bliss, I guess. But that just isn't possible. Uh, suffering finds everybody. <laughs> it's, it's again, you know, it, it, it's another, it's a second of those three fundamental parts of reality is that there's always at some point some suffering no matter how hard you try to avoid it but it's almost like we don't have to suffer from the suffering that it can be there without completely overpowering us or consuming us uh, without defining us that we don't have to be overcome by the suffering. And that by, by sort of accepting that suffering, by not fighting it, not running away from it, by just paying attention to it, It loses its hold on us. And that the suffering too is not permanent. It's subject to those same, those same principles. And so whatever suffering we're feeling right now in this moment, it too eventually passes. And this moment just leads us to the next moment and the moment after that. 
and each one is different. And by paying attention to each one, by not grasping on moments of the past, not chasing after moments of the future, we can sort of live through the suffering. I think that's what's meant by transcending it. I hope that helps. It did, thank you. Okay. Yeah, just to follow up on that, something arose. Um, I think you used the word transcend. Uh, there was another word you used uh, regarding this, the suffering that arises. Do you remember what it was? It was something like transcend. Maybe overcome, but I don't Overcome. But the word that popped up is, I've heard it in other forums, is integrate. And, and that, that felt quite right to me in that moment. I see you nodding. Does, yeah. What does that bring up for you? Uh, so the question was, talking about transcending or overcoming suffering, can we talk about integrating the suffering? Uh, and I think so. Yes, I think that we, uh, part of the practice is just to see suffering as, as a sensation, as a feeling, as a phenomenon of this moment. But again, it doesn't, define this moment or define us. It's just a piece of what's going on. And, you know, I think at some level, if we look deeply in ourselves, you know, even in moments of joy, maybe you find some, there's still some suffering there, even if the suffering is just this knowledge that that joy will eventually end. And even in moments of real pain and suffering, if you look deeply in yourself, there's some element that isn't suffering. Even if it's again, just the knowledge that, that someday the pain will pass, that, uh, that every moment of our life is filled with all kinds of feelings, sensations, and none is more real than the other, even if it feels like one is all consuming in that moment. Hmm. It's not, none of it is permanent. None of it has a permanent essence. It's all just part of, of each moment. Yes. Excuse me, when I think of transcend, I think of its root meaning, which it means to rise up and cross over. Mm. So that transcendence, transcendence is not a state, it's an action. Mm. Uh, just to repeat, uh, one way to think about transcendence is to rise up and cross over. So it's not a, it's not a state, it's an action. I think that's a good point. Yes, please. 
Um, when I hear the word suffering, uh, it seems to me that a suffering kind of includes in itself a certain pain and, um, and saying that there is some element of suffering all the time, even when there is joy, um, does not resonate with me. And although I've, I've, I, have, um, I have read and heard that maybe suffering is, is, a, is a stronger translation of the, the Pali or the Sanskrit word Dukkha and maybe discontentment is something which, uh, which I find in my experience being always present that no matter where you are, what you do, what you achieve, uh, there is always this element of discontentment and that, that never seems to go away. So, so what are your thoughts on like these two words, uh, suffering and discontentment and what is like more appropriate uh, in, in terms of, um, in terms of being ever present? Uh, so the question was uh, around suffering and whether maybe the word uh, discontentment would be uh, more apt uh, because suffering seems to imply a sense of maybe more acute pain. And yes, it's, it's difficult to know the best way to translate these words that come to us across 2,500 years and often translated into several different languages before they get to us. Uh, and discontentment is certainly a word that sometimes used dissatisfaction, uh, even stress sometimes. And I guess I, I do somehow resonate with the word suffering, maybe just because that's, that's how I learned the Four Noble Truths when I first studied them. But I also think, at least for many of us, it does, uh, this discontentment, it does, it hurts. It's, uh, you know, it's, it, it's very real. Um, Buddha in one of his talks uh, talked about three kinds of suffering, I think. Uh, there's not getting what you want, there's getting what you don't want, and there's losing what you have. And, uh, you know, I think we all experience all three of those. And, and there is an element of pain to them. That's not to say that life is always painful. Uh, and certainly, you know, that wasn't Buddha's experience. As I said, he, he led a pretty happy life as a child uh, and managed to avoid suffering, you know, for, for a pretty long time. But it's just that it always comes. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know that it will come. Um, that even in, even in a moment of, of bliss or, or pleasure, if we ask ourselves, we know that eventually the suffering will come. 
And so not necessarily that we are experiencing it always in that moment, that every moment includes pain, but just that in every moment we know that the suffering will find us, that it's, there's no permanent escape. That's how I interpret this first noble truth that life is suffering, that just it can't be permanently avoided just because you know, nothing is permanent. And so no matter, no matter how happy we feel you know, because of some new relationship or a new job or promotion or some other good luck that we've had, wonderful food, good friends, if we look deeply and we are honest with ourselves, we know that that won't bring permanent bliss, that that's not achievable through those kinds of acquisitions. Probably have room for one more question before we take a break for lunch. One thing is reaction versus response. response. Uh, and then I like um, Alan Watts's uh, interpretation of the heebie-jeebies, really. But that's what we're up against when you cut your knee or something. It's your reaction. It's like, ah! <gasps> and uh, so it seems to me it, I tend to rely a lot on this acute pain to teach me more than anything. <laughs> I mean, though I, I feel that you know, emotionally, I feel it, um, that we, that's what the meditation practice is sort of, I mean, if you sit there long enough, you're gonna, you're gonna know a lot about what you're, what you're talking about. And, and then, um, so I think that's the greatest opportunity is just doing the meditation practice. And then finally, I think a lot of what we said in a nutshell is in the heart sutra. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Uh, so the question or, or observation was that uh, maybe some of this comes down to kind of reacting versus responding that the, this, what I've been talking to about suffering is kind of like this, this reaction we have to like cut yourself and you immediately get sort of freaked out by that. Um, and uh, I think it's true. And, and the last thing you said that all of this really is in the Heart Sutra, which is what we chanted here at the service. Uh, I think that's absolutely true. Um, whenever I uh, lead the service here, my preference is that we do the Heart Sutra because I do think it is It is the essence of our practice, of our understanding. That I mean, that's why it's called the Heart Sutra because it's the heart of our understanding, the heart of wisdom. Um, and it really is all there. Again, if we we can pay attention to it. But I, I really appreciate. Oh, sorry, Doug. Could I make uh, when you're this, done? Can I make go ahead. An announcement. 
announcements, yes, we'll, we'll have announcements. Um, I really do appreciate you all coming up, those of you who are here, and then all of you who dialed in, I appreciate that as well. Uh, it's really nice to be able to reach people both, uh, both who are able to join us in person and sit together here in the Zendo and people uh, maybe far away. Uh, and it's really just so nice to have a full Zendo again. Um, and so I, I hope you'll keep coming and uh, really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by Jokoji Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information about Jokoji, please visit us on the web at jokoji.org.